Welcome to the All Thought is Black Thought podcast. I'm O. And my name is G. (laughs) 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 I guess you could say I've been one of the lucky ones. I have been out of work for months on end. Within the next week, my unemployment benefits will run out, and so will my choices. And so I'll be forced to return 15 pounds heavier to a workplace that has a new and strange peril that I only dimly understood last time I was there. I'll be forced to return just like the people who've been bringing me groceries and delivery. I work construction, so danger is all in a day's work. I tell myself, at least I'm not an iron worker. At least I don't spend all day leaning out over the edge of a high-rise building. And I get myself psyched up to build something that will stand for a long time. Something that as I build it will teach me how to build future things. Something that will, that I will try to unlock like a mental and physical challenge for a third of my day. And then I'll go home to prepare myself to face the next day. And when the danger is something you're being paid to assume, you don't complain even though maybe you should. Because you assume that somebody has to do this job or buildings won't get built. It's a lie. It's a lie. They'll just hire somebody else to do it. And when you spent a lifetime in the academy, you almost welcome the adventure of a tangible danger. When you can see and sort of anticipate the possibility of a 40-story fall down an elevator shaft you're working in. It's something you've been trained to prepare for. And occasionally, a misplaced foot has made you have to imagine the fall. What you would grab onto and how you would get back out. It's a possibility that others on your job site have prepared for too. Some, like the iron workers, more than you. And you all sort of look out for each other as workers. And even though you don't trust the bosses, you kind of figure they're aware of the need to provide ways for you to avoid the biggest dangers, not so much because they care about you as a person, to most you're quite literally a number, but at least because their liability insurance will go up if you get injured or die on the job. But this, this is different. COVID-19 is infecting people at job sites all over the area I work with, all over the country. The country which refuses to take the concept of the shutdown seriously. And I have no reason to suspect that the bosses on my job sites will be any more prepared to see their workers around the dangers of infection and community spread than Trump's stupid ass is. Especially because if you're sick, Their insurance company ain't going to charge them nothing. They're just going to send you home to run out your medical insurance. Enough of the guys I work with likely believe that COVID-19 is a hoax. After all, more than a few of them believe in Pizzagate, which is an equally plausible conspiracy theory. Time at home has given me a lot to think about. And in addition to all the other things with my partner and the kids and all the other ways free time can be filled up, I've chosen to build a podcast to think through things like why we work and how we are robbed of the the fruits of our labor and how better worlds can be imagined. Things I could not afford to think about when the elevator shaft was staring me down day in and day out. Things I won't be able to unthink within the next week or so.
Uh, what's going on with you today, brother? Oh, <laughs> uh, man, nothing much. Just living that corona life, man. How you doing? Uh, doing the same. You know, waking up late and uh, not going to work. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, uh, <laughs> work. Work. Four little words. Yeah, yeah. Living that, <laughs> living that unstructured life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. uh yeah, I thought maybe we could talk about work and you know, all of the uh not only the way that work affects us, you know, and the way that it schedules our life and the effect that it has on our on the way we think, but also the uh anxiety around work right now during this whole economic crisis and pandemic. So, uh, yeah, so that's why I suggested that we talk about work and coronavirus. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. On a lot of people's minds, because uh, like you said, that uh, unemployment is uh, running out pretty soon. And it's like, man, going back to work, you're risking your life. And you know, staying home, they, they're going to, like, try to starve you out. Right, exactly. So you, you're left with uh, no real options, right? They're either that or potentially face homelessness, which is also yeah. going to affect a lot of people who have been uh, put out of work due to the virus and, you know, got behind on rent. And, you know, unless the uh, government either at the state or local or federal level make some sort of intervention, there'll be just an enormous amount of people made homeless, you know, due to no fault of their own and all of a sudden, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a lot going on and there's a lot to really stop and think about in terms of the way that this society is structured around, you know, this almost like there's some sort of a moralistic idea around work that now because of this virus we have to question uh the way that people have been condemned around work and really think more seriously about the way that we have these ideas set up in our head because uh, the other thing that's happening because we're not working <laughs> you know we don't have that automatic uh schedule that sets the time that you go to bed and the time that you wake up and also determines what you do on almost all of your idle time because when you're not working you know typically on the weekend or whatever your particular schedule is you have all these other things that you have to do to prepare for work you know like if you have children then and you're raising a family you're probably at Costco on the weekend <laughs> right. spending, yeah. spending hours in that store stocking up on <laughs> food to eat and supplies to go to work for the you know the next week and then mm -hmm. after you know after you spend all the time in the line walking through the giant store getting the items that you need and then you have to spend all that time putting it up at the house and before you know it you know your Saturday is pretty much shot, you know, <laughs> you, you get, you, you get dinner time to watch a movie around, you know, six or seven in the evening. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you, and you yeah. got to sleep a few extra hours because it was Saturday. So right. <laughs> it was like a luxury. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, uh. But, uh, but now 
stop. Get that every Go day. Ahead. Exactly. Yeah. So what's what's it been like for yeah. you? Uh, what's been just a, uh, you know, nothing real deep, but just what's it feel like being off, you know, this long? Because I know in the time I've known you, this is probably the longest that you've been, you know, not having to go to work every day. And some, you know, either when you're in graduate school or in your current occupation, this is the longest, right. the longest right. amount of idle time that I've known you that I've known you to experience. So what's that been like yeah, for you? Yeah. Yeah, man, it's been a mixed blessing. It's been like, you know, on the one hand, uh, you are, you know, you got to set your own uh, schedule and make sure you check off the things on the checklist every day that are, that are important to get done. Cause there are some things that are still important to get done. I mean, they're not, you know, not like work exactly, but, you know, you, you got to move the car because it's parked on the street and you want to make sure it's not street sweeping day so you don't get too many tickets, get your car towed. Right. <laughs> um, you know, you got to, um, you got to, uh, you know, I don't know, still be a supportive partner and everything like that. Like, uh, like my, my, uh, my fiance, she's, uh, she's teaching still. So she's got to get up and do her thing and prepare and get up on the camera and everything like that first. You know, I want to help support her with that since I'm not doing shit. So uh, I just want to make sure that uh, she's okay. So I, you know, fix her a little breakfast, you know, to, so that she's got something, you know, because she do some long teaching sessions, you know. So I'm kind of uh, in that way, sort of uh, half in the support support mode of, of work. And then on the other half, trying to keep myself busy. Um, but then, you know, developing this podcast with you, uh, you know, over this time that we've had off and everything like that and really getting that going has been like, uh, really, uh, really great. Um, you know, it feels, it, it doesn't feel like work, but it is a way of staying busy and staying engaged and purposeful. Uh, so even though I'm just playing a support role with, uh, you know, with, with my, my partner, um, you know, and we do lots of stuff together that lots of projects that we've been putting off for years around the house you know finally getting it looking the way we want it to look there's all no um projects that personal projects uh, projects with you know my, my homies like you you know that i've been putting off for years and uh we can't uh, get together in person but we can you know do this over the over the interwebs you know so it's uh right. that's been the, the mixed blessing of it is uh and really i mean when i say mixed blessing it's still largely been a blessing for me so far because I haven't had to work. I've had the, the, the privilege to not have to work because I had enough unemployment. I had enough, you know, uh, other benefits that I was able to take advantage of. And so I didn't have to, to uh, feel the pressure to go, you know, get one of these gig economy jobs exposed, you know, too. So that's about to change, I think, once the unemployment runs out. Right, right. We'll see. Yeah, one thing that's happened with me, and I, yeah, I get it. I'm, I'm not in the same. I'm single, so, and all, you know, I'm, mm. I'm single. I don't have young children, so. <laughs> I hope they're not coming for you. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll wait for a second. 
This is one thing about uh, authentic podcast. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is really coming from the grassroots. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, we ain't in no studios. Yeah. We're not even in the closet. I can't even fit in my closet. I don't know how these people be recording from the closet. Right, a, right. A walk in the closet. <laughs> I've been noticing a lot of the uh, broadcasts on television, like how nicely some people are living, you know, you get a yeah. rooms, you're like, wow, man, I, you know, I could quarantine yeah. like that. That'd be nice. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One thing that's been going on for me is that uh, this, this amount of idle time that I've had, there's been a lot of things that I've be- become aware of during the time, you know, there's like so much, uh, information that I sort of knew was going on in the back of my mind, but like through things like YouTube and social media and, uh, you know, various uh, websites that have information published on it. And some of it is really surprising to me. And, and some of it explains why this society is uh, in so much uproar. You know, there's there's a lot lot of stuff that you like the amount of people that are participating in uh, some sort of uh, borderline racist activity through social media. You know, I just I wasn't I, I heard about it, but I really wasn't aware how prevalent that is. And right. you know, and then you know, and also it's made me think about the the way that work has shaped people's lives. Like one friend of mine, she's been off now, you know, since the, since the uh, coronavirus broke out and I was talking to her and I was asking her, so what she's been up to, she's now she's started, it appears to have started a business uh, making cakes, right? Pound cakes mostly. (laughs) But uh, at the same time, I asked her how does she feel about being off work? And she said she doesn't miss it at all. And I sort of laughed because, you know, all the time that I've known her, she, for a long time, she was a single parent. She got married about five or six years ago. And still, she, I, all the time that I knew her, she was working at least one job, maybe two. And the first thing she said after I asked her that question about how she feel about being off work is that she's glad to be off and she doesn't miss it at all. So, I, you know, it makes me wonder what's going on with people in terms of how they're thinking about this and also the ways that we're, you know, forced to believe we need to work as much as we do in this society and what the quality of life would be if you were able to sustain yourself with, you know, working less than 40 hours a week and or at least 40 hours a week. Lots of times, much more than that to get all of the, uh, all of what we think we need for, to be satisfied. I'm not even going to say that we what's required for our existence, but more to the point of what we need and what we think we need to be so satisfied, be satisfied. Our sort of material existence has been, I think challenged with this whole virus and the unemployment and all of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Man. Yeah. yeah. Which really, which really, you know, makes you question the whole fundamental idea of a capitalistic system, basically. Like, is, you yes. know, 
people are really going to have, you know, like, I think this whole event has made people question their participation in a system that really only benefits the most wealthy. Like most of the work that people are doing, all the things that they're calling essential now are really is brought down to the elements of what really is, is required to sustain a society. And a lot of the work that people are doing is just to make, you know, another, you know, potential billionaire and trillionaire because the majority of what we do doesn't come back to us. So, right. Uh, in any form. And, you know, yeah. in, in fact, in, in a way, it's a net payout from us to the rich, which is amazing to me like, that we, uh, you know, the, the things that we uh, produce, you know, I mean, I guess this is, this gets into kind of, um, uh, you know, Marx's labor theory of value uh, right. to some, to some extent that, you know, the things that our work produces, the things that our labor produces, uh, you know, are of a different value, a great, greater value than the, you know, the materials, you know, brought in for us to work on. And we don't see, you know, anything partly of that, of that value. Almost all of it goes to the owners, you know, they take the labor, the, they take basically the fruits of our labor because our labor was the difference that turned the thing from the, the, the raw material from the, you know, the thing that wouldn't have, that would have just been sitting there otherwise. And now we picked it up and installed it in a building and delivered it to somebody's doorstep. And now it's, now it has, you know, more value than yeah. it had when it originally came in. So that's, we make the difference, but we don't see that difference in our pockets. No. Right, right, yeah, yeah. I think about when I used to work as a carpenter. We, you know, the stacks of wood that come in and the forklift brings up to the building site wouldn't be anything mm-hmm. without the labor of the carpenter. You wouldn't have the shape of a house. You wouldn't have the uh, floors or the roof or none of those things would exist without the labor of the carpenter. And yet, for the time that I worked in the trades, I just watched the. Uh, relative pay that a carpenter received for his work just decrease and decrease to the point I remember in, uh, I believe it was around 1991, I was uh, working in the Bay Area and then I, you know, there was a real bad recession going on. This was during uh, the Bush one administration. And I was, I went to, you know, there was, I had been a union carpenter up to that time, but there was no union work going on at all. And, uh, or at least none that I could get. <laughs> Let me put it that way. Because, uh, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> because there is, a, yeah. there was also an issue of racism in the building trades. But, hey. uh, <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> which, which pulled, calls into question a whole nother realm about the problem of work and particularly work right. for, for black folks and, and the way that they exploit brown people and pit people against one another, but that's that we can come back to that. But I remember yes, that yeah. by the by the time uh, that recession had hit its real high point, I was going out to a job in uh, I believe it was in Fairfield, and at that time, journeyman carpenters were making around uh, 
I think something like I was working for around uh, $25 or $30 an hour. I can't remember exactly what the wage was. But they, I went out to a job in Fairfield, a non-union job, and they were paying $10 an hour to do the same work that I had been doing up to that point for uh, $25 an hour, you know. And, oh, yeah, and and it just sort of goes to show that, you know, my skill level at that point, I'd been in the trades at least 20 years, you know. And I, mm-hmm. you know, and I had been trained as a, a – went through the apprenticeship training program. So the skill level was there, the training level was there, but the pay went down uh, <laughs> to a point that it, yeah. you, you couldn't sustain yourself on that amount of money, even back in 1991 in the Bay Area. So, right. And, and the right. fact that I was driving all the way from that part of the Bay to get out there to Fairfield and, it just, you know, just really at that point in my life, I really started questioning even the the whole concept of work and the sort of moral pressure you feel to to be uh, correct, properly employed, right? As if mm-hmm. as if the working person has any real control over that. Uh, you know, so much of that is due, you know, so much of whether you work or not is at the discretion of someone else and not really in your control, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and a lot of uh, and a lot of the way that they, you know, under previous, uh, during previous recessions or economic crises, they sort of act like the workers should just work for less, and that they have a moral obligation to work for less, because uh, you know, almost like what you hear, like during the coronavirus, where you had the uh, lieutenant governor of uh, Texas saying that, you know, <laughs> I can't remember the exact quote. Maybe you can remember that quote, but basically it, it doesn't matter if you might die from being exposed to the coronavirus, that we need to keep the economy going. That's more important. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah. His, his literal uh, quote on uh, Fox News uh, was, uh, let's see, you know, when I – what I said was when I was with you last night is that there, there are more important things than living and that's saving this country for my children and my grandchildren and saving this country for all of us. I don't want to die. Nobody wants to die, but man, we've got to take some risks and get back in the game and get this country back up and running. So anytime you find yourself saying, you know, nobody wants to die, but that's a problem. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely. A, that's, that's you, you, you ain't the one who's going to die. You're the lieutenant governor of Texas. You're not the one who's facing death. You're not the one who's going to be out there sweating on a, a rooftop, you know, putting pitch, you know, up there and, and, you know, nailing boards down and stuff like that. Right. You know, out in the hundred whatever degree heat, you yeah. know, or putting pipe in here or, you know, carrying groceries there, you know, you're not going to be the one doing that. Or working in a meat packing factory where all the people around you have the virus and it's just spreading because you're almost touching each other as you do your day-to-day job. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and then on top of it, you know, you're not benefiting from the work that you do. And then the, you know, the surplus that you produce, the wealth that you produce doesn't even go to support the society. It supports, you know, an economy that really supports the rich and has 
very little concern about the people that work and the poor, you know, that you can work and still be poor is not even a really a fundamental question for some of these people in power. You can't get your knees met if you're sitting up in the, in the hospital, you know, and, and exposing other people is, you know, really fucked up too. Right. You know, you're going to be exposing other people by going to work, you know, they're exposing you. And then you come home, you're exposing your families. No, that's, that's, that's how removed they are. That's how abstract the idea is to them that it's, it's simply a matter of getting the economy working, you know? Well, I mean, yeah, everybody wants, you know, to live in an economy where you can get the, the, your needs met. This whole angle of people talking about death in such a cavalier manner, like uh, Trump saying, you know, well, I don't want more testing because I want to keep my numbers low. Right. It's like, motherfucker, your numbers are going to be where they're going to be. It's just a matter of uh, you, your public image. You, you want to keep your public image good? Okay, let's say, say that. But right. your numbers are where they're at. And um, it's just it's it's just such an abstraction to them um, uh, that it, it really brings into stark relief this um, this whole idea of uh, you know the deathly processes of uh, the ruling class doing what it does you know that they want they expect there's going to be a certain amount of death always and right. they're just uh, you know sitting back counting it like talking about death talking about you know, sickness from a disease that kills, which is basically the same thing as talking about death. Like, you know, this uh, Missouri governor, Mike, Mike, uh, Mike Parson, uh, just the other day was uh, talking about, you know, these kids have got to get back to school, you know, and everything like that. And if they do get COVID-19 and they will, they will when they go to school, you know, they're not going to go to the hospitals. They're going to go home and they're going to get over it. You know, but who's at home? Right. Who are they going to when they're going home? Right. They're going to mom and dad who presumably have to be ready to go to work. Yeah. And then, the, but, you know, like when you're when we were talking just a second ago about the lieutenant governor, he's talking about preserve the economy for his uh, grandchildren. But what happens to mm-hmm. the children that and families that are destroyed because they get exposed to the virus in this yes. moment? It's not preserved for those families. It's preserved. For those families that own capital, but not the others, yeah. And so the, it's this trap, right? It's not a trap, yeah, exactly. Like the, and the Missouri governor saying that the children are going to get it, but then that you know he's also setting up a situation where the grandparents will die. It's just ridiculous. Yes. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These are the same ones who talk about family values and families sticking together and things like that, and right. communities rallying around people. You know, they're the ones who like their their idea of a healthcare plan is uh, GoFundMe. Right. You know? Right. I mean, because if, if work is the is the basis of how you get your healthcare, which it is in this country, uh, then you get sick, so you can't go to work. I mean, that's that's about to be where I'm going to be at. Honestly, I, I've been I've been out of work for so long this year because I got sick at the beginning of the year. You know, right. and so I was out on disability. Disability was nice. Uh, it was time to recover. It was time to be with my family a little bit that I hadn't gotten to do. And then coronavirus hit. So disability, you know, went and then it ran out. And then I switched over to unemployment. I've been on unemployment. 
Well, uh, now both of them about to be out and the health insurance that I had, you know, paid forward for a few months because uh, I'd stocked up so many, uh, banked up so many hours of working over the years. Uh, that's about to run out uh, toward the end of next month. Uh, so, you know, that's going to be a real difficult time if things don't turn around on this and they're fucking around so much that it's not going to turn around. It's just going to keep getting worse. Right. Uh, the coronavirus is going to keep getting worse, which means there's going to be uh, even less work for me, you know, and I'm going to have more idle time to sit home and think about things like the labor theory of value. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which, which unfortunately more people aren't thinking about the labor theory of value. More people aren't thinking yeah. about the fact that it's their work that creates all of this surplus that allows billionaires to accumulate more billions. And that's really the yes. problem, you know, and, and also it points out, you know, so many of the intrinsic problems of uh, the, the system that we live under, like the fact that, mm -hmm. that, that really the reason they want the schools to reopen is so that they have a daycare system for children so that parents can go to work. It's not really about yes. how adequate or how well the children that enter the system are educated, but really just a way to account for the kids not being left home alone, you know, and, and, for, right. and for black children and for poor children and, you know, and in an education system that really wasn't working to start with. It's even more apparent that they, you know, that they really don't care about what they're being educated about. And they're not giving us what, what I would call an adequate education if people aren't even able to think about the way that the economy works in a way that they can call out the ways that it's not serving the workers. You know, you're not really educated if you don't have the tools and the skills to examine your situation and your position within a society. And, and I don't think that people are adequately prepared to uh, do that. We're not, we haven't been educated enough to like really question the economic and political economy to understand what it's doing to us. Even before coronavirus, it was doing all that stuff to us. Right. Now we just have a little more time to, uh, to kind of process that if, if that's what we can take it to do. And, and part of the hope that I think, you know, you and I have for this this podcast is to help them think through the contradictions in this system because it doesn't have to be like this, right? And it's not like there's, this. There's when yeah, it's not like this. And within the same society, there's some children that get really great education. You know, my time working mm -hmm. in academia when I was a teaching assistant, I could, you know, there were some some students that I read papers from, and it was clear that this freshman student first year in college had got a superior education. Like the way that this one student I'm thinking of in particular organized her essays compared to some of the other students that I had, it was clear that she had practiced that for a very long period of time and was trained on how to do it. And it's not as if there's some mystery about how to do it. You just get educated on how to do it and then you put the, uh, process and motion, you follow the steps and you come out 
with a uh, good product, you know. Right. But but the fact that that's not available to all students and they're not trained on how to make an organized argument really says a lot about how, you know, the inequity built into the educational system, which also determines where you end up in your work life, too. Yeah, yeah. It determines your future possibilities uh, and um, and your ability to, to 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 think through, you know, like you said, what your sort of position is in society, you know, and, and how the society operates. You know, like a good education does so many things, like a, a high quality education, you know, which which isn't just about school. It's not just about right. you know school, but there are some, you know, like quant, uh, quantitative sort of uh elements some some you know dollars and cents elements that you know if your classroom has you know 40 students and one teacher in it right. you're going to get a, a lower quality education no matter how good quality that teacher is you know or no matter how great the you know the computer is in the room you know right. uh, that's still too many people too many bodies uh too much distraction you know, if the, the physical plant of the school is all messed up, you know, the heat comes on in the summer and the, the you know, air conditioning in the winter or whatever, you know, the, the, that's that's going to mess with the quality of your education. You know, all those things play a part. And that, of course, you know, the, you know, the, the income level of the families, the wealth of the families, you know, tends to concentrate privilege and wealth and resources in certain areas and rob them from other areas. And the other areas are, you know, there, there, there are many poor white areas. There are very many, there are, there are a lot in the United States. Don't get me wrong, but you know, it's going to be disproportionately black people and indigenous people, you know, uh, who, you know, see the, the, the brunt of that kind of unequal, uh, you know, social order. Yeah. Yeah, and if you, yeah, if you take into account the fact that that, uh, you know, like even the basic education of how to read, write, and do mathematics doesn't occur for you, then when you go out into a world where you have to make a living, you're limited in terms of what you can actually do. I know for myself, when you got in uh, to get into the Carpenters Union, they had a math exam that you had to do in order to. Uh, do the apprenticeship. That was the only requirement is that you pass that math exam. And if you came from a high school uh, or a schooling experience in general, where you never really, you know, my experience, I, you know, I'd say I was more self-educated than I got from, from the school system itself, you know, and if people had a similar educational experience as I had, then you're not prepared to uh, take that test the minimum requirement to get into a trade union. In addition to the fact that if you don't have, at least in my time when I was working through the trades, there was, there was numerous discrimination suits against the carpenters union, uh, you know, all across the country. And there's a lot of reporting on the fact that they wouldn't even hire black carpenters in the New York city region. And so you're already excluded in that way. But the fact that your education didn't prepare you to do the geometry that you needed to do and do some of the basic math calculations 
you were never exposed to through your high school, your, well, your entire school experience contributes to the fact that, uh, you know, by the, by the 1980s, you had so many young black men participating in a, you know, the underground economy and whatever drug sales or any other number of things as a way just to live, you know, and also, Mm -hmm. you know, when they sort of eliminated the safety net, it pushed people into all sorts of illegal activities. And you got to wonder what's going to happen right now if they don't take adequate action with uh, the economy being in the state that it's in. What are we going to see happening as a response to, you know, the political economy failing so many people right now? Like the situation you're in, right? You run out of uh, uh, benefits and you also run out of uh, health care. You know, it it won't push you into criminal activities, but there's plenty of people that will see no no way to get out of that situation. They really don't have a way out of that situation because – Everything that we do is dependent on a system of work that never really served us to start with. We think about things like um, full employment, you know, um, like everybody having a job who's able to work one and, you know, and and wants to work one, you know, like that's something black people have never had with possible exception of, you know, the time of slavery, right, which was not an employment that was remunerative to us, right. So it really, really didn't benefit us. But like, it was you know, I, I, I what, slavery was more a deployment than an employment. <laughs> you know, you yeah, were, <laughs> yeah, you're right. You were de- you deployed <laughs> to do something, but you weren't employed in the sense of making a living. That's for sure. And then you know that's that's something that uh, a lot of families, I mean, most black families have never really recovered from. Right. Absolutely. Like we're still in the same, you know, a similar position. Right. Right. Well, we've always sort of stayed, uh, you know, in the lower economic middle class, you know, which is a, you know, even the whole description of class in the U S is, uh, gives you a sort of, it's a sort of a misnomer about what people are actually experiencing. But, you know, there was, you know, when you think about black people's employment situation, you know, for so much of the time that, you know, since slavery, black people were used sort of as a wedge against organized labor and then organized labor, uh, the leadership in organized labor was so racist and, and never, never had any interest in seeing black people participating until, until their organizations like many union organizations were to the point they were collapsing and then they wanted to uh try to bring in uh a more diverse workforce and organize uh more workers of color and you know including black people and latinos but until a certain point that was they did that out of desperation almost because i remember uh working in the bay area there was a point when there was a consent decree for a local that had been discriminatory and they didn't even abide to it after the court order, you know, so that, so, you know, black people, you know, there, I guess you could probably look at, you know, during the great black 
immigration people went to places like Detroit and were able to create uh, a life for themselves because there was organized labor. Uh, there was factories. There was a lot of jobs that black people had in terms of working in the uh, industrial economy. But man, since mm-hmm. the and since the 1980s, that's been disappearing more and more. You know, and at the same time that we get increased numbers of educated black people, meaning with college degrees, we still don't see that uh, having a deep impact on our economic situation. Yeah, which is, which is really ultimately about the accumulation of wealth intergenerationally. Yes. Which yeah. got this, which whatever wealth we had really got destroyed during the uh, 2008 uh, crash. You know that. Yes. <laughs> that after that, yes. we, you know, we were we were decimated by that. And I, you know, I'm not an economist, so I'm not going to claim to know everything that's going on in terms of the economic discourse. But it doesn't take much to see that uh, a lot of black people suffered really bad from that and never really recovered from that crash. Let alone the precarious position that we had in American society. I remember when Ronald Reagan got elected, we, uh, it was the beginning of a recession. And I remember watching uh, reports from places like Chicago and Detroit. They'd have jobs for uh, hotel workers, basically uh, jobs, what they call houseboys and maids jobs, you know, where you're the cleaning staff and the, service staff for a hotel which was a very low-paying job and back then even there'd be people lined up for blocks to get those types of jobs and it sort of foreshadowed what you saw happening by the 19 later into the 80s where you saw the emergence of an underground economy that's just not going away a drug economy you know an economy based on uh communities of young people that, you know, do carjacking as a way to make a living, you know, all that, all of these sort of really detrimental uh, means that people go to, to make a living just to sustain themselves. You know, when, when work, when quote unquote legitimate work isn't available, people will do what they got to do to live. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you can't, you know, they build, walls you know then try to keep uh keep us contained you know because they know that's what's on the horizon for the foreseeable future you know not just because of corona that's been in the plans for a long time yeah. you know um just exacerbating the problem right right and, you know, it's it's funny because that you know uh, Trump wants to say that, you know, the unemployment rate is going down and stuff, you know, it declined to, you know, 11%, which if it's 11%, you know, if the U.S. unemployment rate is 11%, uh, I have guesses about what the black unemployment rate would be. It's probably like 20%. Yeah. In some areas and in some sectors of the population, it's probably way higher than that. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And and then uh, and then like going back to the 80s, there was a point when the unemployment rate got to a certain height and they started counting people in the military as part of the employed. So it reduced, you know, the statistical number, Uh, but it really didn't 
uh, deal with, you know, the real unemployment rate. So if they're saying, for instance, if the unemployment rate got to 6%, there's at least another uh, 5 to 6% of people that aren't accounted for it uh, in the in the unemployment numbers, you know, so. Yeah. And, and the black, mm-hmm. and we know historically that the black unemployment rate has pretty much been in double digits for the last 25 or yeah. 30 years, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it tends to be double whatever it is for the general yeah. society. Yes. Yeah. And when you think about, you know, this whole sort of uh, everything being dependent on work, it just work, mm-hmm. work is not a way to provide for everyone in the American economy. There's always a surplus of workers versus the amount of work that's available and particularly the amount of work that's available that you could actually live off of, that you can pay rent and eat. You know, if you live in the Bay Area and if you're making uh, $15 an hour, that's not adequate to even rent a room in the Bay Area working full time, you know. Not not when a studio apartment costs two thousand dollars a month. So, <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yeah. If you got kids, forget about it. Right, right. And and it wouldn't be bad planning on your part to have kids because you might have started out, like for instance, working in the building trades right now. You know, you you might yeah. have been doing well for the last. Uh, seven or eight years you know you're uh you started out right out of high school now you're in your uh late 20s early 30s and all of a sudden this happens to the economy and and that that has nothing to do with bad judgment on your part because as as it appears you were doing well right up to this point and now there's nothing available and who knows what it's going to be like after this virus is over the you know the real estate market could definitely have changed by now that demand that drove all the building that goes on right now for those good jobs in the construction industry could have could and very well have disappeared now and so then you had children and you thought that the way you were going to make your living was to work in that trade and you know have children take care of them all of a sudden you're working at uh doing whatever work you can get that may only make you six hundred dollars a week and yet you've got uh, right. you, you you and your partner have three children to take care of possible, you know, or yes. even or even one child. And then on top of that, you have to figure out how you're going to get health care and all the rest of it. It's just it just shows how inadequate this framework that we live under that depends on your partici- your participation in the workforce to live just doesn't provide for you adequately as a worker. During this idle time, you know, you really hope that people start to really get some deep thought about the way that, uh, you know, we're told that we, you know, you get conditioned to go to work, come home, do your job. But then what do you do once those that job disappears? And what do you do if the only thing that you're trained to do is a job that disappears? You know, you, you have to re-enter making minimum wage as a 40 something year old person and you've got all the obligations that you might have as a 40 year old person, but no means to earn 
and adequate living to meet those needs. It's just, it's sort of highlighting all the problems with capitalism and a system that only is concerned about accumulation for the owners of capital. That's who it's designed for. Right. And that's, uh, that's not to talk in sort of a conspiratorial sense. You don't have to buy into no conspiracy theories to understand this stuff. It's, it's really pretty simple. I mean, it's a, it's basically a, uh, like a gangsterocracy, you know, but the, you know, the, the gangsters are the, you know, uh, too big to fail banks. The gangsters are the, the corporations, the gangsters, you know, are the ones wearing suits and their guns, you know, most of the guns that they use are ones they carry in uh, briefcases and, you know, sign on the dotted line and stuff like that. And instantly, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're on the streets because some, some asshole signed this document, you know, right now, you know, because it's all just an abstraction to him or to her, you know, right. uh, but for you, it's, it's real, it's, it's real and tangible. And it shows up in your kid's eyes when you say that you can't afford this or that, you know, you can't afford, you can't even afford to have a place to live, right. you know, so much of uh, just uh, so much of Oakland and, and uh, you know, and, and the Bay Area as a whole, all these sprawling homeless encampments, man, they're getting bigger. And yeah. it hasn't even, you know, gotten as bad as it's going to get. No, no, there's a pending pending crisis at the end of this month that uh, who knows what's going to happen once that goes yeah. into effect. Yeah. And then after about August, in a lot of places, it starts getting real cold. People are going to get really desperate. Yeah. Yeah, the fact that they're cutting off whatever uh, eviction moratoriums that they had in place at the end of this, uh, this month, you know, what are mm-hmm. people going to do when there's no jobs to go to, when there's a virus in effect? And and whatever jobs that are available aren't jobs that pay well, you know. It's, it's uh, and then at the same time, you'll hear uh, some of these people that are that are employers saying that uh, their workers don't want to go back to work because they're getting more on unemployment than they would at their jobs. Which I don't know. That says a lot about <laughs> that's <laughs> that says a lot about how problematic the job is, right? <laughs> like, yeah, like this, yeah. people are making rational choices. This is, you know, to mm-hmm. use economic language, you know, they, you know, the argument about so much of what people do in economic terms is 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 a rational economic choice. Like people don't participate mm-hmm. in low-paying jobs because they have a choice. They do it because they don't want to starve to death. But then, if you give them another yeah. option, they're not going to do it, right? <laughs> and so, right, <laughs> right. So, uh, any employer that's uh, dependent on very low wages to keep people working right now, they're not able to do that. But then, that should tell that should be some sort of an impetus to reshape how the economy is organized. You know, they do it in other countries. You know, they do it. Yeah, they are. Most of Western Europe, people don't make. A non-living wage. They've decided that they can't have a society divided by a non-living wage. But yet, in American society uh, and other racist and racially organized societies, you know, less homogeneous societies, they have laws in effect that it's all right to have people work, you know, 80 hours a week and still not have enough money to meet their essential needs. 
Yeah, this is, I mean, the whole design of the society, what, what you're showing here is that there's a sort of a, a network of factors, you know, that uh, intersect on every single person, you know, at least in the, in the working class, which, you know, basically, if you're not a capitalist, if you're not, you know, like, uh, you know, a Jeff Bezos status, you know, we're right. feeling this in some way, shape or form, you know, middle class may be feeling it a little bit uh, less than, you know, the, the lumpen proletariat, the, the, the workers who, you know, who basically are, you know, precarious or kind of, you know, have limited options in the economy. Right. Everybody's feeling it, though, that, that you know, that has to work for a living. And um, and it's just it's it's amazing. Like what I, I want to know what what stands in the way of us saying, look, there's way more of us than there is of them. There's way more of us, you know, yeah. how do we just take control of things? Because it, it comes fundamentally down to a question of power. They are only going to do to us what they can, what they can do. Yes. They're not limited by a sense of ethics. They're limited by the reach of their power. And if we show them and if we show ourselves that we, we can take the power, we can seize control of, you know, the, the society and set the terms in ways that are way more favorable to us. Like we've had, you know, in some ways uh, before we've, we've had programs that were designed to get people working, keep the economy going, add to infrastructure and roads, bridges, you know, uh, things like that, that people need hospitals, you know, uh, all kinds of uh, infrastructure like that. You know, we have ideas about, you know, like how education could be carried on, even in the midst of a crisis like this, you know, there, there could still be ways, like I, I'm seeing on, um, on the news about uh, different um, options that, you know, very wealthy people are taking, like, uh, you know, establishing, you know, sort of pods, little groups of families that keep their education going for their kids, you know, right. um, which, of course, because it's rich kids, it's only going to add to the advantage that they have over poor kids, right, in school. Yeah, but absolutely. it's possible for us to do this, the same thing for, for poor kids. If the political will is there, if people see that, you know, the majority have the power the, the, and the society is supposed to be accountable to the people, you know, that can be a possibility, that can be a possible, you know, alternative future for us so that we're not all out on the streets starving in the uh, parking lot across the street from an empty hotel, yeah. you know, right. like there's so many things right now that you, you can just look, you can just stand on a street corner and you can just see the contradictions right in front of your eyes. Right. You know, people uh, sleeping in parking lots while there are, you know, huge empty luxury hotels on the Las Vegas strip, you know, uh, People driving cars down the street that cost $350,000 right next to somebody who's living on a street corner, you know, um, and people uh, who basically are, are going to have to, you know, risk getting sick and send their kids to school so that the kids can get sick or become carriers and bring it back home to them. It, these things don't have to be that way. There are possible solutions that can be implemented 
and that are being tried out in, in uh, you know, not just by the rich in this country, but all over the world, people are doing it. Like you said, like, you know, like, like Germany has the, the, the Kurtz Arbeit uh, program basically, um, you know, allows, uh, basically makes it so the government pays the lost wages, you know, to the workers uh, because they're not having to work so much. So the company stays in business and the workers stay financially solvent. Right. You know, uh, right. There's, you know, you're saying, you know, moratoriums on evictions. There's moratoriums on, um, you know, uh, like student loans and, 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 and mortgages, um, you know, and rent, you know, it's, it's possible if there's the will, if the will is there. Right. Right. And what keeps the will, what, what keeps from being the, the will from being. That's, that's right. The I have. Yeah. And, and as black people, we have to also allow ourselves uh, the creativity and the imagination to figure out alternatives for ourselves. You know, we know we know historically that the education system hasn't served us. Uh, we need to uh, find a way to connect with people that have various skills, uh, various understandings. Like, if I had young children now, I'd be uh, searching out people that were good at math, for instance, and figure out a yeah. way to organize groups to learn math. You know, if I didn't know it myself, I'd, and then hopefully those folks that do know how to, you know, have those particular skills that we think our children need would be availing themselves and making themselves, uh, you know, uh, assets to the community to help spread that knowledge so that we don't keep on going through uh, this whole process of just having our children becoming further and further alienated from uh, a process that they need to survive. You know, the knowledge that they need to uh, create uh, possibilities in their lives. Like, you you know, the fundamental need to be able to read, do math, to, uh, to understand science. Like the, the fact that they have the, you know, the whole idea of STEM but I bet you, I'm not mm -hmm. sure, but I bet you STEM is not available in, you know, 80% of the schools that black kids go to in the Bay Area, you know? And mm -hmm. if the, and if they do have a STEM program, it's probably very selective. It's not something that they're doing across the board for all the kids in the school. And, and, and because I know for a fact, the little bit of time that I worked with, uh, with the, I worked at a program that was for uh, high school dropouts. They have these things like the uh, individual education programs for black students that don't press young people to to challenge themselves to learn everything they need to learn even because they you know it's sort of that low expectation that oh that kid he you know he doesn't have the intellectual capabilities but I mean, you know full well if you're a black person that grew up around other black people that what they're calling a dumb and a black person is just a lack of understanding of the ways that we communicate and we think, you know? And so yeah. we need, we need people to, in this moment of crisis, I guess is what I'm trying to get at is that we need people to start figuring out ways to organize groups, uh, to recognize that we have to do for ourselves what we need to do because the system is not geared or concerned about saving us or our children. And like you're saying, we also need to recognize that they can only do to us what we allow them to do. 
you know, if we organize ourselves and say, nope, you're not going to do our children that way. Uh, we want this for our children. They can't, they, they don't have the, they're not used to seeing a collective of people just, you know, be stubborn and determined and have to be forced into do, doing something like education. They won't, they're not going to exert that sort of energy against us, I don't think. And if they do, it just exposes, exposes what this uh, society is about, which we really need to understand then, you know. Yes, yes. yes. If we're seeing what the society is truly about, if that, if that truth is exposed to us, what is the truth that we are seeing? What is the truth yeah. of that paradigm? Is it the same thing that we're taught, you know, in the, in the schools, what, back when the schools used to teach civics classes, Bro. you know, Bro. that, uh, you know, the government exists by the, uh, by the consent of the governed yeah. uh, to protect uh, the life, liberty, and property, and that, you know, uh, of, of, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you know, of all people equally, equal justice under the law. If, if that's not the truth, what is the truth? Absolutely. And, um, you know, we're seeing the truth. Yeah, you know, we're seeing the truth of capitalism, you know, uh, and we're seeing the truth of, you know, the, the work relation and how we don't need to be working all the time. Right. Uh, it, the world won't fall off its axis if we don't. And in fact, if anything, you know, the environment will heal somewhat, you know. Yes. Um, but we got to get we, we, we got to understand these things that are right in front of us now, but we need the tools, the intellectual tools to kind of be able to interpret that, which are not going to come from the schools. Like you're saying, we have to organize our own networks of, of, uh, of exchanging those kind of tools so people can see what's right in front of their faces, what's causing them to suffer now. Yes, absolutely. Because right now, more than any time in my lifetime, and I think in a lot of people's lifetimes, those contradictions are more highlighted than ever. There is no reason that the government or the U.S. state couldn't support the people of the society. Not if they're going to give billions of dollars to corporations and then those corporations in turn give millions of dollars to the leadership class in those corporations. And yet they can't give people you know, they're resisting giving people uh, an additional $500 per week so they can sustain themselves, have food and a place to live, you know, it, it, you know, on top of what their uh, percentage of regular unemployment insurance would be. Uh, even, you know, and we, and of all times, if uh, we look at what happens with the whole rise of the prison industrial complex and the and the role that employment plays in the number of uh, black men and women that you see locked up in prison. People don't participate yeah. in a drug economy uh, because, you know, for no other reason to, than to get money. You know, when you look mm -hmm. at, when you examine like all of these uh, young people that have been uh, at the top of a drug kingpin organization, 95% of them come from intense poverty. You know, this, this like right now, what's going to happen as far as I, I would forecast it is that you're going to end up having a crisis that's going to create a whole generation of people that think the only way that they can live is to become multiple millionaires. And that's a dangerous thing for the society to, uh, 
think that the only way you survive in a society is to be a multimillionaire. You create a really dangerous environment for everyone because all you have is people concerned about their own personal wealth with little or no concern about the collective good of anyone, you know, and the, but on a rational level and the way this society is organized right now, if you don't create a large amount of wealth for yourself, then you're destined to be on the street eventually. You know, if you're, if you're born uh, right now, by the time you're in your sixties, the way this society is going, if you don't have an accumulated, millions and millions of dollars you're going to be sleeping on the street you know uh mm-hmm. 60 years from now if you even you know if that is even you might have to pay for a place to sleep on the street the way this this society is working mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. you know and that you know i guess for me on the reason that i'm bringing all this up is because i'm hoping that it's some level i spark people to start thinking about the way and the trajectory of of what we see happening has been sped up particularly since the 1980s particularly since the reagan administration you know there's been bad things happening to black people forever in american society since since it began but it you know the sort of the there was a period like you said, from the 1950s through the late seventies where people were actually on the rise. You know, there was, mm-hmm. there's no doubt there was a hell of, hell of a lot of discrimination. There's police brutality and all that, but you could, there was a period of time where black people actually did, were doing better economically. And then when the economy began to contract and capitalism just you know capitalists the organizers of capitalism in american society decided they needed more profits there was a means to go offshore the globalization of capital occurs then the shit hit the fan and we're just doing worse and worse and there's been little or no concern about how it's affecting us and there's been all of this moralism about how corrupt uh black culture is and black people are in terms of you know our sort of uh moral center without paying attention to the economic reality that we're living through and some of the problems that were considered black problems in the 80s are just part of american problems at this point so uh i just hope people that have all this idle time can find a way to look further into you know, why are things working the way they work? You know, they're, they're off their yeah. jobs all this time and the world keeps going, right? And yeah. a lot of the work they were doing was just really to serve rich people. So mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm making much of a point, but, <laughs> but yeah. the, you know, the, no, idea, yeah, the idea that we've got this society with all of this economic inequality and no one's fundamentally questioning it at this moment. Like, I don't see a lot of voices that you would have seen in the 70s coming out now. That sort of uh, really radical analysis of what's going on seems to, like, just be suppressed right now for some reason. There's only so many ways to, to keep it suppressed before, you know, force starts being used. And we're seeing, you know, basically Trump start to use right. the kind of... 
repressive force, like the open, naked repressive force, basically he's like secret, secret police, yeah, banishing people off the streets. You know, he's just uh, trying that out right now, but that's going to become more common because, like you said, people aren't just going to let their kids starve, right? Not. Right. It's 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 a fact of of uh, you know survival as as brutal as any nature show you could watch, and yeah, I think. The main philosophy among these uh, wealthy elites is, you know, this movement is basically a, a social movement among the elites that affects all the rest of us. You know, we've had we have our social movements as, as you know, working people and poor people, uh, you know, but uh, they have their movement, too. Their social movement is a movement what we can call neoliberalism, neoliberal capitalism that you know, is basically the reason why since in the 1970s, basically, uh, there's been no rise in real wages, you know, right. that the, the growth of people's wages and income has not, you know, kept pace or has barely kept pace. Yeah, you may be getting a little bit more than you were getting, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, but your your dollar is not going as far, you know, so you're really losing money. Yeah. And I think of some jobs, like even, uh, there's jobs right now that are paying $12 an hour here in Nevada. And back in, in, uh, 19, uh, let's see what year would that have been around 1979. I was making $12 an hour as a apprentice carpenter. Yeah. And they're literally paying $12 per hour. You know, that same, yeah, literally the same dollar amount, which means it's far less value, you know, because back in uh, 79, you could rent uh, one or two bedroom apartment in parts of Nevada for, uh, you know, not even 500 a month, you know, so Mm -hmm. it's, it's, and, and, you know, but now. You know, uh, in the Reno area, for example, I'm thinking the rents for a one-bedroom apartment are running around, uh, you know, one thousand to twelve hundred dollars a month. You know, and and you're paying twelve hundred, paying twelve dollars per hour, and yet, you know, it was back in the ni- in in 1979 they were paying twelve dollars an hour. So not only has the real wage not increased, it's actually decreased a lot, you know, and they wonder why the society falls apart the way it does. You know, literally, literally in my lived experience, I, you know, I've lived through times where I watched how much the, I I don't, I I wouldn't even know what the calculation would be for what $12 an hour would equal in 2020 dollars, but I imagine it'd be probably around, you know, 40 or $50 an hour by now, you know. And and the yeah. fact that they they're literally paying what would have been the equivalent of probably five dollars an hour back in the seventies, right now, and right. you know, and these companies uh, get away with it, and those sort of companies are recruited into areas. You know, they get all sorts of tax breaks and all the rest of it. Like we really do have to find a way as working and poor people to start organizing differently, including. creating our own system of education, excuse me, our own system of uh, building knowledge, you know, the, even just this whole idea that 
all thought as black thought we need black people to start thinking about ways that we creatively you know confront a genocidal economic system like there are ways that we can pool resources and make it more possible for us to live with less there's probably ways that i you know that some of us out there know expertly to you know uh pool resources and create collective living spaces where we don't have to have all these people forced into homelessness and the rest of it if we just put to, put our heads together and really start working on that because our survival is at stake and we need a different sort of political philosophy we need a new moral orientation uh, we can't just criticize people because they're not working and you know we shouldn't have been doing that since you know this whole turn toward an economic system that doesn't employ and that was really what started to happen in the late 70s and the early 80s and now it's in full effect where there's a permanent uh rate of people that the government you know when they say full employment they're excluding at least five to six percent of the population if not more you know mm -hmm. so right yeah and we and and it's going to take a collective organization of people at just for just at the level of survival we need to do that and then extend that toward a different sort of political organization and movement so yeah yeah that's the only way we're going to get out of this is collectively yes we stay separate they're just going to keep stomping us right and they have plans for that like you said it is a genocidal system we'll we'll talk more about uh necropolitics i think sometime you know basically that that uh, a society you know with uh where oppressors you know design uh, a certain amount of death to have to happen yeah. and they keep it onto certain populations who they don't deem to be as uh as fully human right you know so we as black people understand that position and we are, you know, accustomed to coming up with a lot of our own solutions. You right. Know, some of them, you know, above ground, some of them underground, you know, yeah. but we, we, we come up with solutions or we wouldn't have survived all this stuff that's going on over the last, you know, 500 years or even the last, you know, 150 or so years that we've, you know, been, you know, technically emancipated, you know. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. You know, our survival has always depended on collective you know, uh, collective activities, you know, just to meet basic needs. Right. We're going to have to lean back on that, that knowledge uh, that comes from black thought that comes from that position of being the, uh, the, the one who's, who's uh, constantly on the outside looking in. I see, you know, it's not like a, this is an original thought to me because I see sparks of that coming up. I'm just not aware of all the different ways that it's manifesting itself. But you see people, for instance, in uh, uh, gardening and growing food movements that do that as a support to themselves and the communities that they live in. But, uh, you know, I would just encourage people to start looking at extending that to the ways that we educate our children, the ways that we uh, deal with one another in the community when we see uh, sort of the things that 
prevent us from having civil relations with one another. There's ways that we can start to uh, bring people back into the fold instead of alienating one another. And we really need to do it because the crisis is really heightened at this point.